Hi, thanks for checking out this message from our River Valley Church family here in Boise, Idaho. We hope that it encourages and inspires you. For more messages, be sure to check out our other podcasts. For more content from River Valley, go to our website, rivervalleyboise.com. Enjoy this message. Good morning. Oh, that was good. We're ready. We're ready here this morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Zach. I am one of the staff members here at River Valley Church. If you are new, we are so glad you are here. I see some new faces. We won't embarrass you, make you raise your hand, but just know you're welcomed and you're loved. And we are excited to jump into the Word of God this morning and continue our worship by letting His Word wash over us. As you can see, we're in a series on thankfulness, and I love that question there. What are you thankful for? That's the question we get to Thanksgiving on, and our family's all around the turkey, and everyone's going, let's eat, and we ask that question, right? Anyone do that at their house? Anyone? Right? And then you always get to that person who's like, well, I don't know, and you're like, wait, you had 10 people to think what you're thankful for, and you didn't say it. So I'm going to tell you what I'm thankful for on the spot, okay? Yesterday, we had some family and friends over, and um, my wife, as many of you know, is pregnant with our with our, ba- with our baby, and we were just getting to hear what gender it was, and you guys who weren't there want to know if we're having a boy or a girl? All right, how many think we're having a boy? How many think we're having a girl? Well, you're wrong. We're having a boy. So <laughs> we're having another baby boy. That is what I am thankful for this morning, but what, what, what we're going to talk about right now as we talk about thankfulness and gratitude is that sometimes, even in the happiest of moments, doubt and fear can overcome and hinder and challenge that attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness. Amen? It's challenging. So um, I'd encourage you, if you haven't listened last week, Pastor Larry gave a powerful word uh, to kick this series off. I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Um, But this morning, I just want to set the table here. And I love when Scripture and the Word of God and the principles in God's Word actually are confirmed and line up with science. I just love it. I love it when secular people and professors and scholars and all these people um, think that they're getting something new as they study these great things and do these psychological studies, but actually it's just confirming what the Word of God already says. So can I share some things outside of the Word of God with you this morning? Okay, here's the definition of gratitude. This is from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The quality of being thankful is readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness that's gratitude that's thankfulness here's a scholar that some of you may know um, cicero 65 bce this is what he said about gratitude and thankfulness gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues but the parent of all other virtues think about that weird huh 65 bce that was a long time ago none of us were born then And here he is, this great scholar of time, the person that everyone looked to saying, hey, you have to have gratitude. He was not a follower of God. He was not uh, a follower of of Yahweh. And here he's saying gratitude leads to every other kind of virtue and good character that we have. Interesting. There was a study done by UC Berkeley. All right. Professors in the UC system, if you're from California, they're very, um, they, they love their studies. They love their their clinical psych- psychological studies, and this is what it came out. It's a secular study, a non-Christian study by a large group at UC Berkeley, and it said this, that regular gratitude is so important because of these things. Gratitude increases our quality of sleep by 25%. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy? 
It says that a five-minute daily gratitude journal, if you were to take five minutes a day and write some things you were grateful for, increases your overall long-term well-being by 20%. Crazy. Here's one at the workplace. Anyone have a job out there? Anyone? Okay. Anyone like your boss out there? Not so many. <laughs> Receiving a thank you or a, a note of gratitude from your boss boosts your productivity by 50%. 50%. And here's the one that shocked me. Only 52% of women and 44% of men would say that they are a grateful person. Over half of the world would say they aren't a grateful person. And can I tell you something? If I'm fully honest with you, I'm probably in that 50% that isn't always grateful. And if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we are, you are too. We're there with me. But as I said, I love it when, when secular studies and professors in science confirms God's word over 250 times in God's word. There are specific passages on how to be grateful directions and instructions for us to to war against ungratefulness and to be grateful 250 times do you think it was important to the lord i want you to turn with me to romans chapter one i want to read uh one of those times we won't go over all 250 today we'll just do like 100 or, or 200 but in romans chapter one this is what paul says to the roman church and I think it sets the tone and, and the overall, it, it captures the overall arc of Scripture that we want to dive into today. It says this, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth, they have seen the sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature. Come on now. Come on, preach. Come on, preach. I like it. I like it. They have no excuse for not knowing God. Mm. Yes, they knew God, but they chose not to worship him as God or to give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. And here's the part that I, I want you to focus on this morning, church. They traded the truth about God and his goodness and his promises, and they traded it for a lie. Heavenly Father, we're, we're here this morning because we know that we, we need to be changed and transformed by your word. Lord, I am not a naturally grateful person. I'm often moved and swayed by the circumstances in which I live, Lord. And this morning, God, I pray you'd sow a word so deep in my heart that I would not exchange the truth of your goodness and who you are for the lies and the schemes of the evil one. And that, God, you would do a cementing work, lay a firm foundation of the truth of your scripture. And I pray you'd do that in us and that that would be pleasing in your sight, Lord an act of worship unto you. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So, I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to jump around just a little bit today. How many of you guys know all good sermons start in Genesis? All right. This is the third straight week 
that I have preached, that I have journeyed into Genesis. I'm very proud that my streak is alive, okay? I will try to continue to do that because I just love Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be. We're going to read a very uh, popular historical account of the creation of the earth. But before we do that, I want to read you a quote by St. Ignatius. Now, you have to do a a lot of cool things to become a saint. I'm not quite there yet. Maybe you are, but I'm not. But St. Ignatius lived in the 1500s. So we read a quote from Cicero in 65 BC. We read uh, some scripture from Paul, which was around 30 AD. And then this is a quote from St. Ignatius in the 1500s. He actually formed the Jesuit church, which is, you know, if you're a church history buff, it's pretty impressive and it was an amazing feat. But he said this, ingratitude is the cause and origin of all evils and sin. Let me say that again. Ingratitude is the cause, beginning, and origin of all evils and sin. And as we walk through scripture this morning, I want you kind of to see the schemes of the evil one. How many of you know that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against principalities and powers, and there is an alive and active warfare for our minds? We've been talking a lot about repentance. What does repentance mean? It means, uh, the, the Greek there is metanoia. It means to change the way that we think about the way that we think. We are not naturally grateful people. All right? And we have to war against that ungratefulness because I very much believe, like St. Ignatius, that the beginning of, of sin, the beginning of going down a path that leads to, to fear and shame and all those things is ungratefulness. Okay, So Genesis chapter 2, go there with me. Verse 9, Adam and Eve are there. You guys know um, a little bit about them. It says this, the Lord God made all, verse 9, the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. I want you to think of your favorite fruit right now or your favorite food, okay? Just imagine them growing on trees. In fact, it even says this in verse 12. Um, I'm not going to read it, but it, it says that there were rivers that were lined with gold and precious stones. This is where Adam and Eve lived. They walked with God. They were in harmony with all animals. It was a beautiful place, this, this paradise garden of Eden. They had everything they need and more. And yet, there was one thing that they thought they wanted. And and we have to notice the origin of sin in Genesis chapter, go to chapter 3, verse 2. It says this. This is as the serpent went up to Eve and said, are you sure God loves you? Are you sure you can trust him? Are you sure that he has what's best for you? Is he holding out on you? And this is what she says in response. Verse two, of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the ones that are producing the beautiful fruit and, the, and in the, with the rivers that are surrounding them with gold and precious stones. Of course we may eat from the fruit, from the trees in the garden, Eve said. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. You see, she knew what God had said. She knew exactly the instructions. And if we're honest with ourselves and we battle through ungratefulness and sin and challenges with following God, we know the truth. Romans 1 says it is clear and obvious to us. When we watch the sun rise and the sun go down, we know that there's a God. But we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And it's exactly what Eve did. It's exactly what Satan got in there and got a little foothold in her mind and got her to think, Is God holding out on me? Is he really good? 
Does he really have and want what's best for me? Or is that one tree out of the thousands upon thousands of trees and the rivers of gold and the rivers of precious stones and walking side by side with God, being in harmony with animals, lions maybe resting on their, on their laps, is God holding out on me because I can't have that one thing? And we all know what happened in the historical account of Genesis and of creation. She eats the fruit, and then what does Adam and Eve do? God comes to be with them, and what do they do? They hide. And Satan's so good at that. He's so good at getting us to hide and be, be, be living in, in shame and fear of God, the wrong kind of fear of God. And that's Satan's playbook. It's Satan's playbook in my life. I mean, I was thinking about it this morning as I was studying uh, you know, Gen- the, the account in Genesis, and I was looking through the, the arc of Scripture, and this is, this is what I believe is Satan's playbook. This is the one he uses on me all the time. It's up here on the screen, okay? He gets us to doubt God's goodness. Satan gets us to doubt God's goodness. Nate, do we have it up there by chance? No? Okay. No worries. Satan gets us to doubt God's goodness. That's number one. Then we develop an attitude of ingratitude. If you're taking notes, you develop an attitude of ingratitude. And then, the the third step is that we begin to trade the truth about God for a lie. That's from Romans. And then the fourth step is we stop trusting in God's goodness. We stop trusting in the good things he has for us. We stop trusting in the thousands of trees in the garden that are awesome and amazing. And as we stop trusting in God's goodness, we slip into sin and we live in shame and we live in fear. That's what happens. That's Satan's playbook against us. We see this as as the book of uh, Genesis unfolds and as it it goes into Exodus and the the history of Israel. Um, When you look at uh, the Israelite people, you know, Adam and Eve sin, they fall short. God says, I'm going to raise up a people. They're going to do better. Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a random man named Abram. He has nothing special about him. He is an 85-year-old man that has no kids. God says, you're going to have some kids. A lot of women out there go, you're crazy, all right? But they actually have kids. And he gives him as many descendants as the sand. But those descendants end up going to slavery in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. I want you to think about how long 400 years is, Okay? It's a little bit older than we are, way older than Terry is, okay? I don't know, Lynn. I don't know. You're right. 400 years of slavery in Egypt, doing the same thing over and over again. They're longing for deliverance. Exodus 15 comes around. Moses comes around. If you watch the movie, The Prince of Egypt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm in the cartoon stage with my kid right now, so we've seen it. All right, the Prince of Egypt rolls around. Moses comes, and they deliver the people. They're getting out of slavery 400 years. You guys think your job is hard after a couple weeks or about a year or two, and you want to get a deliverance from your boss? 400 years. And they walk out of Egypt, and literally, God parts a sea, and there are walls of water on each side of them, and you can actually go and look where, where they actually walked across. The, 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 you know, the geography is amazing, and there's this little sliver through the Red Sea that they walk, and there's cliffs on each side, and they walk across on dry land. Imagine that. I, I know we can't picture it. We can't understand that, the, the mighty miracle that would be, but imagine that God did something so amazing in your life that he parts a Red Sea. 
They walk through on dry land, and literally one chapter after walking through on dry land, they begin to question God's goodness. I know we'd never do that, right? I know God's never parted a Red Sea in my life or your life, and then literally the next day we begin to question God's goodness. But look at, look at let's, let's make fun of the people of Israel because we'd never do that. Exodus 16, verse 3. This is literally one chapter after they walk through. This is what they say. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. 400 years of slavery, walking through a Red Sea hundreds of feet high, and this is what they say. Go to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. This is a recount of the same, the same um, you know, sequence in Numbers. It says, if only we had died in Egypt. Let's choose a new leader and go back there. How many of us do that? Come on, be honest with ourselves. This is what I do. God parts a Red Sea in my life. And not only do I not trust his goodness, not only do I begin to question whether and doubt uh, how good he is, and I develop an attitude of ingratitude, and then I go back and I trade the truth of God for a lie, but then I actually, I want to go back to the circumstances that God just led me through. I want to go back through the Red Sea and go back into slavery and my sin. And this is what the people of, 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 of Israel wanted to do. 400 years of slavery, they walk through the Red Sea. They, they see these miracles happen and they go, you know what? God can't be good. God can't be for me. Well, that generation got it wrong, but I know the next generation of Israelites would get it right, right? 400 years go by. 400 years go by. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. You're following along. 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. They have now come through. That generation that was doubting had, has gone away. They have walked into the promised land. They have a land flowing with milk and honey. They are in the perfect geographical spot to thrive. God is blessing them. They are, they are conquering all their enemies. They are driving out all the people that, that uh, God told them to drive out. And they are, they are cemented in the promised land. Life's good. But you know what? They didn't have that one thing. You know what they wanted? They wanted to be like the other nations. They didn't want to be the people that God had called them to be. They wanted to be like the other nations. And this is what they say to Samuel, the prophet, who was helping lead them. They say in verse 5 of chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, they say, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Just that one thing like the garden, right? That one thing they didn't have. He says in verse 7, God replies, do everything they say to you, Samuel, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. I'm sure glad I don't do this. I'm sure glad we don't do this, huh? And again, Satan's playbook from the Garden of Eden is played out. They doubt God's goodness. They develop ingratitude. They trade the truth of God for a lie. They stop trusting God and they live in shame and fear for the next three or four hundred years until they're carried away into captivity because of their sin. There's a spiritual battle for our minds and our hearts, church. There's a spiritual battle for your gratitude. And we have to embrace it, and we have to fight for it. 
It does not come naturally to us. It did not come naturally to, the, to Adam and Eve. It did not come naturally to the people of Israel. It doesn't come naturally to us today. We have an attitude of ingratitude. And, and what I want to sow into our hearts this morning, what I believe God wants to share with you, is that not only do you have to be aware of this, but you have to do something about it. Okay? You have to change the way you think about the way that you think, and you have to act upon it. So how do we do that? Well, I believe there's two very simple steps. It's to remember who God is and what he's done and what he deserves. And to remember who we are, what we've done, and what we deserve. You see, what the world will tell you is that you deserve this, you deserve that. Or they'll tell you, oh, you don't deserve this or you don't deserve that. I'm a prime example of that. I grew up in a, in a broken home. My, my parents got divorced before I was one year old. Bounced back and forth my entire life. Challenging. If you've come from a divorced family, challenging. Just, you're a young kid, you have no idea what's going on. And, and as I grew up and and got into my early 20s and started to process that and just, just be around other people, I would get a lot of people out of a wonderful heart, wonderful heart, come up and say to me, you didn't deserve that. You didn't deserve that, a divorced family. You didn't deserve a broken home. You didn't deserve to have to go back and forth. You didn't deserve uh, to, to grow up in that environment. And, and while I appreciated and, and loved that as I processed that, now what I want, what I want you to hear is this. Thank God I don't actually get what I deserve. Thank God I don't actually get what I deserve. Romans chapter 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm a part of the all. Isaiah 64.6 says that our greatest moments of faith, our greatest acts of service, the greatest worship service, the greatest sermon, the greatest uh, serving a homeless person or serving and, and, and volunteering at a shelter, going on a mission trip, the greatest thing you could ever do for God is like this. It's a filthy rag in his presence. That seems very harsh. But compared to the righteousness and the goodness and the awesomeness of God, the greatest thing we could ever do with our life is nothing in comparison to how good he is. If I truly got what I deserved, if you truly got what you deserved, everyone take a big deep breath. Let it out. That wouldn't be possible. It's simple, right? This is nothing revolutionary. You've heard this before, huh? I've heard it before. But if we truly got what we deserve, that breath wouldn't be possible. You see, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul again just makes it so simple. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he says, He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. And then he showered us with kindness. He's rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins as he showered us 
with his kindness. Do you believe that? I want, to, I want you to ask yourself that this morning. Do you actually believe in the goodness of God? I believe that your answer to that question on a daily, hourly, moment-by-moment basis is not only critical, but it is the very way in which you thwart and rebuke and, and, and cast off the attacks of the enemy on your life. I just do. I just believe that, it, it, that gratitude is that important, that understanding who we are and what we've done and what we deserve and understanding who God is and what he's done and what he deserves is so important in our lives that it is something that we have to fight for, that it's something that, that we have to we have to take intentional steps to sow deep in our heart because it does not come naturally to us. 250 times God specifically addresses us in Scripture to develop a heart of gratefulness. It doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. Because I know the very real reality of our lives makes us ask, but how can God be good? How can I trust him? How can I have confidence in him if? And each of you out there right now, you have an if. Come on now. You have an if. You have a circumstance that is staring you right in the face. You have a thought process that you're going through on a daily basis, that you're wrestling with on a daily basis. You are asking yourself, how can God really be good if? How can be God good if there's divorce? How can be God, God be good if there's suffering? How can God be good if I lost my job? How can God be good if my boss is, is making my workplace challenging? How can God be good if my relationship with my sister is fractured? How can God be good if my dad has cancer? How can God be good if? What's your if? And it's a fair question. And it's a question you should ask. It's a question that God is not afraid of. Can I tell you that this morning? He's not afraid of that question. It's a question that is so big and so ginormous that it is the number one reason people walk away from Jesus. Did you know that? You are not alone in asking the question. But I want you to know there's an answer that's bigger than the question. And this is the answer. 1 John 4, 9. Turn there with me. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Jesus' brutally gruesome death. This is real love. Not that God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. As the, as the worship band comes back up and as we get ready to close, 
I think one of the greatest schemes of the devil as he gets us to live in doubt and live in fear, as he gets us to question the goodness of God, as he gets us to um, doubt the thousands of trees that God has put for us in the garden and focus on the one thing we don't have, as he gets us, as he, as he gets us to doubt that God just parted Red Seas in our life, one of the greatest schemes and attacks of the devil is to make us apathetic to the work of the cross. If you're like me, you grew up in church your whole life, maybe, some of you here, and you've heard the story of what Jesus did for you so many times that we lose the sanctity, we lose the the appreciation, we lose the awe and the wonder of what Jesus did on the cross. I'm a living example of that. The devil gets us to stop thinking about that and start focusing on the one tree, the one thing that we don't have. Yesterday I told you we found out we're having a baby boy. We're so excited. Many of you know a little bit about our story, my wife and I's story of walking through A miscarriage last March. Those of you who are new, you're just finding out now. Welcome to our family. We just share openly. (laughs) Next week, that baby would have been born. And as we were surrounded by our friends and family yesterday and this moment of elation, I looked to my wife And I could still see, and she could see in me, the semblance of a little bit of fear and a little bit of anxiousness and a real question before us as we process through that loss, even in the moment of joy of finding out that we're going to have a baby boy, going, all right, Lord. Are you good? Can I trust you? Are you good? Can I trust you? Are you sure you're good, God? We can't walk through another one of these. Can I trust you? It was very much different than the last two times we found out what gender we were having when we, when we had our sweet Hezekiah and our sweet Everly. It was very much different than that. God, are you good? Can I trust you? Because God, this baby now isn't just an it. It has, it has a gender. It's a boy. It has a name. I'm not going to share the name with you. We'll, we'll say that. But it has a name. It's real. God, are you good? And can I trust you? And if I'm really honest with you, if that's okay, I wrestled with that this morning. If I'm really honest with you, I went to my my seat in worship because I was wrestling with that this morning. God, I need this baby to be born. 
I need it to be healthy. Are you good and can I trust you? And, and church, I wish I could tell you that in the circumstance you're in, whatever that, that, that prayer you have to God, whatever that if is to you before God, I wish that I could tell you that it's going to work out. I wish I could tell you the miracle was going to come and there would be no more cancer, your job would be fixed, your relationship with your mom and dad or your sister or your brother would be fixed, that this person wouldn't, wouldn't walk through their suffering and their sickness. I wish I could tell you it would work out today. And I wish I could look at my wife and I can't even look over there because I'll break down. I wish I could look at my wife and say, baby, it's going to be okay. But I don't know that. But what I can do is I can look over at my wife and my son and I can look at myself and I can say, I don't know what's going to happen with my if, but I can look back and I can see Jesus on that cross. I can look back and I can see Jesus suffering and dying on that cross. And if I ever doubt God's goodness, if I ever doubt he has what's best for me, if I ever doubt that, that he is for me and not against me, if I ever question that, if the devil ever gets a foothold in my mind and start, gets me thinking down the wrong road, I can look back at that cross and I can remember that he sent his only son to die for me. That's the weapon against the devil. That's the weapon against ingratitude. So as the worship band begins to play, I just would encourage you this morning as they play this song, I just want you to do some business with God. In your life, I know there is an if. There has to be. You see, Jesus promised in John 16, he said, in this world you will have trouble. He promised you that. It's not a promise we like to tattoo on our arms or write on a coffee mug. He said, in this world you will have trouble. There will be suffering. There will be pain. You can look at my life and you look, can look at what I did. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If the devil came after me, he's going to come after you. But he also said, take heart. Take heart, church. Take heart, Zach. I have overcome the world. And then he didn't just say that. It, weren't, it wasn't just words, empty words and empty promises. He went to a cross on our behalf and he took every sin, all our shame, all our fear, all our guilt, all our lack of faithfulness, every time that we, we chose the one tree instead of the thousand, every time we walked through the Red Sea and God parted and did a miracle in our life and we turned around and were ungrateful, every time we did that, he took all of that and he nailed it to a cross. And then three days later, he rose again. Do we trust him? Can you trust him? Is he good? I just want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And again, I just I really encourage you to, to just process through that question. And you might be in a really tough place where the answer is no. And that's okay. You might be on the other side of it where the answer is definitively yes. 
Wherever you are, I believe God wants to to inch you closer to trusting him this morning, that God wants to remind you that even in your lack of trust, he loves you. He's not upset with you. He's not angry with you. He wants to shower his kindness and love upon you. First John 4 says, later, we know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. Such love has no fear. Because perfect love casts out all fear. If we are afraid. I think that should be changed to when we are afraid. All that means is that we have not fully experienced God's perfect love. Heavenly Father, this morning... I'm afraid. Lord, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what could happen. But Lord, I'm standing on your truth. Lord, surrounded by my friends and family here today, God, I'm standing on your truth for me and for us, Lord, that your perfect love can cast out all fear. Your perfect love can cast out all anxiety. Your perfect love can give us faith to take one step forward today, God. So I'm asking you as we sit here before you, as we just do business with you, God, that we would open up and be honest with the God of the universe who loves us, with the God of the universe who sent his son to die for us. I'm asking, Lord, that you would come and meet with us. God, that you would come and remind us of your perfect love that casts out fear, Lord, that you would rest on every heart and every mind in this place, God, that you would whisper sweet, sweet promises in our ears, God, that you would surround us like a perfect father, like the perfect father that you are. And that we would no longer be a slave to those fears that entangle and bring us down, God, that we would step into your perfect love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this message from River Valley Church. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by it? Make sure to share it with them this week. Again, for more content from us, please check out our website at rivervalleyboise.com.